1524, Italy. Though the final crusade was over, the Vatican was still hoping to retake the Middle East when a mysterious stranger appeared in Rome, demanding to see the Pope. He had a foreign accent and swarthy, sun-kissed skin. At first, the papal guards turned him away. The Pope was the most important man in Europe. One couldn't just waltz into Rome and expect an audience. But the young man persisted. He claimed his name was David and that he was a prince of the Jewish kingdom of Reuben, there to offer an alliance in almost 300,000 experienced troops. A hush fell over the guards. The kingdom of Reuben had been lost for nearly 2,000 years. Its warriors were supposed to be the chosen men of God and possess supernatural abilities. It was said that when the kingdom of Reuben and the rest of the ten lost tribes of ancient Israel returned, they would usher in the return of the Messiah and ultimate spiritual redemption for the people of God. If what David said was true, this could be the largest biblical development of the modern age. They had to tell the Pope. Welcome to Gone, a ParCast original. I'm Molly. And I'm Richard. Every other Monday, we examine the mysterious disappearances and the theories they spawned. From the Amber Room to Michael Rockefeller, Picasso paintings to the Etruscan language, the Roanoke Colony to the lost Russian cosmonauts. If it's gone, we're looking for it. You can find all episodes of Gone and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Gone for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Gone in the search bar. Today we will be looking into the Ten Lost Tribes of Israel. The Ten Tribes were comprised of tens of thousands of people, but around 722 BCE, they vanished launching thousands of years of speculation about where they could have gone. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. The story of the Ten Lost Tribes of Ancient Israel has captured the imaginations of scholars, theologians, and general people alike, much like the tales of Atlantis, El Dorado, and the Holy Grail. One major difference from these other stories, however, is that the Ten Tribes almost certainly existed historically. They appear in both the Bible's Old Testament and in ancient Assyrian war records. However, after their exile from ancient Israel in the 8th century BCE, the tribes simply vanished from the historical record. They appeared in the writings of scholars, travelers, and historians all over the world for the next 2,000 years. But their appearance in these texts always revolved around their disappearance. Countries and ethnic groups across the globe have made claims to being the present-day descendants of the lost tribes of Israel. These assertions come from places as close to the tribe's original home as Afghanistan and as far away as Japan and South America. Despite hundreds of years of theories and research, 
no one has ever definitively proven where these tribes went after their exile from ancient Israel or who their real descendants are. Yet, close to 3,000 years later, the story still captures the hearts and imaginations of people all around the globe. One reason for that persistence may be that the tribe's story is the oldest known account of a huge group of people that simply disappeared. On top of that, it comes from an era that was relatively well-documented, making the tribe's vanishing act even stranger. And many accounts of the tribes describe its people as anywhere from exceptional to straight-up supernatural, with long lifespans, exceptional battle skills, and even the ability to make themselves and their cities invisible. If that wasn't enough to spike interest, the tribe's return is said to signal the end of times and salvation for its people, which has often been taken to mean both Jewish and Christian groups. Finding out the truth of where the tribes went would certainly change the way we look at the history of Western civilization, as well as deeply impact two major world religions. Today, we'll be looking at three major theories that explain the disappearance of the Ten Lost Tribes. The first is that at least one of the tribes, the Dan tribe, managed to survive via supernatural powers of invisibility beyond the bounds of a mysterious river. The second theory posits that the tribes traveled far to the east, settling in either Mongolia or China. And finally, we'll explore the idea that the tribes made their way to the Americas and the so-called New World long before the era of European conquistadors. But first, to understand where the tribes might be today, it's important to look at what we do know historically. Ancient Israel was a powerful civilization that could trace its origins all the way to the 17th century BCE, approximately 3,700 years ago. After being forced to migrate to Egypt due to famine around the late 17th century BCE, the Israelites remained in Egypt for close to 500 years before returning to their ancestral homeland in the 12th or 13th centuries BCE. For the next 200 years, ancient Israel was officially split into 12 landholding tribes, Reuben, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, Ephraim, Simeon, and Manasseh to the north, and Judah and Benjamin to the south. The country flourished under this tribal structure. Then, sometime around 1020 BCE, the Israelites established a monarchy to rule all 12 tribes together. This kingdom lasted about 100 years, until the death of King Solomon. Suddenly, the tribes devolved into turmoil over the ongoing leadership and direction of ancient Israel. The conflict resulted in a political schism. Eight of the tribes joined forces to the north, and the remaining two formed the kingdom in the south. The north typically is referred to as ancient Israel, and the south as Judah. Modern-day Israel takes its name from this ancient northern kingdom, and Judah gave its name to Judaism. According to scripture and historical records, the South was the weaker nation. This would make sense given that the majority of the tribes banded together to form the Northern Kingdom. However, the South retained the most important Israelite temple across all 12 tribes, and Northerners were supposed to make a pilgrimage to this temple to worship. 
This should have kept the two kingdoms unified. But the South continued to struggle, and the Northerners looked down on the kingdom. Naturally, the North was larger and more powerful because it had formed a larger collective of tribes. They had more citizens to work as farmers and warriors. The small South, however, struggled to establish itself as a nation of equal repute. The North didn't want to depend on the weak, undesirable South for their place of worship. So the North began to build its own temples. This decision went directly against their faith's teaching to worship at the main temple in Judah. Many Southerners condemned the decision as blasphemy. The divide between the two kingdoms continued to grow. This cycle of blame and distance continued for around 200 years from the fall of Solomon in 922 BCE until a fateful military conflict in the 8th century BCE. The Israelites would never regain the power or status that they'd enjoyed prior to the 10th century BCE. While some of this was due to internal strife within the Israelite kingdom, the key reason was that the Israelite kingdom soon fell victim to the expansion of the Assyrian Empire. Beginning in the mid-700s BCE, the Assyrian kingdom began attacking Israel and its neighboring countries, sacking their cities and capturing their people. By 722, the Assyrian Empire had effectively conquered Israel. This date and event is generally considered to have happened historically as there are references to this conquest both in Assyrian war records and the Jewish Bible. It's unlikely that the Assyrians were specifically aiming to target the Israelites. Their conquest of the Ten Tribes was just part of a larger campaign to assimilate the region into the Assyrian Empire. Regardless, to preserve their victory and expand their kingdom, the Assyrians brought their own people to settle the newly conquered territory. Meanwhile, the Assyrians exiled some members of the North's ten tribes from their homeland to Assyria, where the conquerors used them for their labor and skills. But shortly after their relocation, the tribes simply disappeared. The Assyrian invasion is the last time the Ten Tribes show up in any historical records more than 2,700 years ago. However, we know they didn't vanish instantly. While the exact numbers aren't known, the Assyrians claim to have banished at least 27,000 Israelites, and the estimated population of the northern kingdom at the time was roughly 400,000 people. This would mean that not all of the Ten Tribes' original population was displaced, at least at the time. However, due to Assyrian rule and forced assimilation, Hebrew records of the north became spotty at best. Initially, no one realized the tribes were missing. Meanwhile, the south continued to struggle to survive, ignoring its occupied neighbor. Then, in 586 BCE, it too was conquered by another powerful force, the Babylonian Empire. Just like the northern tribes, the southern tribes were banished to their conqueror's homeland. But there was a major difference between the two banishments. Within 50 years, Babylon fell to the Persian Empire, and the southern tribes were allowed to return to their homeland. They rebuilt their temple and resumed their lives. The Israelites that returned to their homeland assumed that they would reunite with their former countrymen from the northern tribes. But their assumption was wrong. The northern tribes failed to return. 
and they weren't just gone. There was no trace of them left. Having survived exile themselves by banding together, the southern Jewish people began to wonder where the northern tribes had gone and if there wasn't a pocket of Israelites out in the world worshiping secretly, waiting to return. The whereabouts of the tribe and whether they would return became a major subject of debate. The ten tribes are only mentioned by name twice in the Old Testament and only in regards to Assyrian banishment. But it was clear they existed, which means they had to have gone somewhere. Some leaders assumed that the ten tribes simply assimilated into the invading Assyrian culture and thus were lost to the regular passage of time. This theory was based on the direct observations of Jewish exiles in Babylon. While some of the people had stuck together to preserve their practices, others had simply assimilated to Babylonian life. It had been 200 years since the Assyrian invasion. That was plenty of time for people to slowly fade into the New World Order. But others pointed to the fact that the Southern group kept their culture together despite exile. They believed that the Northern tribes had stayed together, but had moved so far away that they were now beyond the reaches of contact. 200 years was enough time to migrate several times, after all. This story of the tribes was widely accepted and made its way into canonical religious texts by the prophet Ezra. Gradually, a standard tale emerged that was part history, part myth. The ten lost tribes, after exile, traveled to a region beyond the impassable waters of the Sambatian River. According to legend, the Sambatian rages six days a week and rests on Shabbat. Because of their faith, the ten lost tribes cannot travel during Shabbat and thus are closed off to the rest of the world. Practically speaking, the tribe's location is impossible to find. Within the story, this means that God had to allow for the tribes to cross the waters since the river normally rages. This also means the new location of the tribes is impossible to find without the help of God. It's also important to note that the Sambatian is a mythical river, and its real-life location has never successfully been determined, nor has the Dark Mountain sometimes referenced in relation to the location of the tribes. Other mythical elements arose. One was a prophecy that the return of the lost tribes would lead to the reunification of the two kingdoms of Israel and bring with it the end of days and salvation for Jewish people. This story became even more popular 500 years later, around 70 CE, with the banishment of the Jewish population from the Roman Empire. Jewish people were scattered across Europe and North Africa, forced to defend their faith and cultural practices while simultaneously assimilating to their new homes to survive. In some places, it became difficult to keep kosher, build proper temples, and maintain their cultural heritage. Just like the Judah Israelites in Babylon and the Ten Lost Tribes in Assyria before them. Finding the Ten Lost Tribes was no longer just a piece of lost history. It became symbolic of the dream of reuniting the Jewish people in a single geographical homeland where they could practice their faith freely. On top of that, The belief that the return of the ten tribes would signal a spiritual salvation grew in popularity. 
returning the ten tribes to their ancestral home would solve every problem the Jewish community was dealing with. But first, they'd have to find them. Coming up, we'll take a look at the developing hunt for the ten lost tribes and their ever-changing location, along with increasing Christian interest in the story. And now, back to the story. By the time the Roman Empire sacked Jerusalem in 70 CE to quell Jewish desire for independence, the Israelites were no strangers to foreigners taking their homes. But this new era of diaspora only served to increase interest in the Ten Lost Tribes as the Jewish people yearned for a place they could live and practice their faith in peace. Finding the Ten Lost Tribes wouldn't just answer the question of where the rest of the ancient Israelites had gone. It was their best chance of reuniting a large Jewish population in a single place. But locating these missing people proved consistently difficult. The only clue to their whereabouts was that they were beyond the Sambatian River in the shadow of a mountain. While some of the initial discussion around the tribe's location has been lost to oral history, speculation on the tribe's whereabouts began in earnest around the 9th century CE, around 1,700 years after the tribes first vanished. The North African community of Kairouan in modern-day Tunisia was home to a sizable Jewish population, one of the larger communities in the region. They, like most Jewish people in the 9th century, were also members of the local city. They were largely bilingual and practiced a mixture of Kairouan and traditional Jewish customs. Just like the Jews of Babylon, they had assimilated to survive, but they preserved their own culture as best they could. And they dreamed of one day returning to an all-Jewish state and a purer form of their cultural practices. In 883 CE, a strange traveler rode into the city promising just that. The rider, shockingly, only spoke Hebrew. As far as anyone in Kairouan knew, there were no Jewish communities left where Hebrew was the only language. But the stranger had an explanation. His name was Eldad Hadani, or Eldad the Danite. He was a member of the lost tribe of Dan. The Jews of Kairouan were excited, but they were also wary. If what Eldad said was true, then why had no one heard from the tribe of Dan for over 1,500 years? Eldad spun an incredible story answering the elders' question. Dan, he said, was in Cush, or modern-day Ethiopia. The rest of the tribes were scattered from there to China. The Jews of Kairouan were intrigued. All of these places were far enough away that it was understandable that the tribes had never made contact with Kairouan or Europe. Travel would be long and difficult, and the tribes did not want to give away their location to stronger empires that would seek to control them. They asked Eldad hundreds of questions, from the specific ways that Dan performed religious rites to translating words into Hebrew lost to the Kairouan over time. To make sure Eldad wasn't making anything up, they asked the same questions many ways over many nights, recording his answers to compare them. But Eldad didn't waver in his responses. After weeks of intense investigation, he hadn't given any indication that he was a fraud. 
There was just one detail that sat oddly with his audience. When they suggested going to visit the Dan, Eldad emphatically discouraged them. He warned that the Dan lived beyond the Sambachian River, which was nearly impossible to cross. And even then, the Dan were impossible to see. Eldad's hosts, wary of this strange excuse, demanded Eldad clarify. Were the Dan simply excellent at hiding? Eldad was evasive, but his answers slowly emerged. The Dan were capable of invisibility. If what Eldad said was true, then the lost tribes weren't just alive and well. They also had supernatural abilities. Of course, it was possible Eldad was exaggerating to protect his people, but the details still stuck out strangely in an otherwise believable account. The Kairawan Jews decided they needed outside counsel. They sent a letter to the head of North African and Middle Eastern Jewish affairs, Rabbi Tzemach Gaon. The documents, which still survive today, explained their situation to the rabbi and included a copy of their extensive notes on Eldad's story. To their surprise, the rabbi had heard of Eldad and the stories the Kairawan recounted matched those the rabbi had heard elsewhere. Eldad's details were extensive, and the location data was feasible. As a result, the rabbi officially recognized Eldad as a member of the tribe of Dan. A surge of hope rippled through Kairawan's Jewish community. The tribes were real, and they were still out there. Still, not everyone believed Eldad or the rabbi. It was hard for the politically minded to overlook the personal gain the rabbi got out of recognizing Eldad. Essentially, this line of theories would link the North African and Middle Eastern sects of Judaism with the ancient tribes. These sects would thus be more revered and respected in the global Jewish community. But the connection was as good for the Tunisian Kairawan community as it was for the rabbi. And soon, doubts were pushed to the side. The existence of the tribe of Dan was taken for granted, and with it, the existence of the other nine tribes spread out somewhere between Ethiopia and China. The specific locations of the nine other tribes, however, were still a mystery, and no one made any progress determining where they might be for over 300 years. Until the year 1145 in the 12th century CE, when Prester John first appeared in writing in the letters of a crusade leader. Supposedly, John was a king and a priest living in the extreme Orient. What was unusual about him was that he was a Christian king, despite being from the Middle East. According to the tale, John had great military might and was actively fighting against Persian and Muslim rule, just like the Crusaders. He also supposedly had powerful alliances with other Middle Eastern peoples. One of those groups was said to be a mighty Jewish kingdom surrounded by a raging river. In Christian versions of the story, the Jewish king met Prester John and immediately deferred to his superior leadership and religious doctrine. This is typically regarded as a Christian narrative trying to justify Jewish inferiority. In fact, the rise of this story is blamed for the spread and popularity of anti-Semitic stereotypes in the 12th century. 
But there is a Hebrew version of the Prester John tale, too. In this iteration, the Jewish kingdom is powerful, sacred, and untouchable. It impressed all peoples, including Christians, but remained elusive to attempts to find or conquer it. Despite the widespread popularity of the tale and dozens of written second-hand accounts that survive today, there are no primary sources backing up the Prester John story. Still, the rumors had to come from somewhere. And we know the tribes were on the minds of 12th century Jewish and Christian people alike, thanks to a historian working at the same time. Benjamin of Tudela, or Benjamin Mi Tudelo, was a Spanish Jew who traveled the Mediterranean region, Middle East, and even as far as China for roughly 13 years. The region matched the range of locations Eldad had claimed were home to the Ten Lost Tribes. Along the way, Benjamin kept extensive travel diaries that are considered one of the best primary sources on 12th century history today. Benjamin was known for recording details about Jewish communities in the places he visited, often detailing local religious practices, population numbers, and cultural achievements within the context of the locations where these people lived. While most of Benjamin's writings are observations and data he personally collected, he included a few secondhand accounts. These accounts always mentioned the lost tribes. His most extensive entry on the tribes comes from the people of 12th century Persia, who believed that the tribes of Dan, Asher, Naphtali, and Zebulun were located past the river Gozon in the town of Nashabor, a place far beyond Persia's borders. While this belief was much more specific than any other proposed location of the tribes, it was not easily tested. Nashabur was a mountainous country located some 20 days' journey away from Persia. Travel would have been difficult, and even if someone like Benjamin went searching for the tribes, the terrain could have easily hidden any number of small villages. Still, it was possible, and Benjamin was a well-regarded historian. He was good at determining what information was reliable and what was not, and he found the story credible. In his mind, it made sense for the tribes to be hiding. They'd eluded contact for almost 2,000 years already, and in a world where anti-Jewish sentiment in Europe was only growing, it was a smart tactic to stay hidden. In the end, Benjamin never located the tribes, but he had identified a much more specific and plausible geographical region where they might have been living in secret. Still... The lack of definitive proof of Benjamin's ideas left the door open for other theories. And these theories would continue to evolve and present themselves over the coming centuries. About a hundred years later, in the 13th century, another scholar placed the tribes in a completely different location, somewhere to the northeast, where the Mongols originated. The Mongols had been invading Europe for a number of years, wreaking havoc with their military might and unfamiliar practices. Their foreign origins and incredible skills as warriors led some European thinkers to posit that the Mongols were actually descendants of the Lost Tribes. But they needed proof. When some of the Mongols were captured by the military, two men set out to verify this theory a Hungarian bishop who interrogated the captured Mongols, and Matthew of Paris, an English chronicler. 
Much like the Kairawan community grilled Eldad, the bishop asked the Mongols dozens of questions regarding their eating practices, Jewish law, and Hebrew knowledge. To the Europeans' great disappointment, the Mongols did not have any of these cultural markers. But they had something unexpected to offer, something even more promising. They had heard of these practices from a mysterious, pale, nonviolent group of people to the distant east. The bishop and Matthew were sure these pale Easterners were descendants of the lost tribes. However, just as in the case of Benjamin Mitudelo, the logistical obstacles obscured any hope of an expedition. The distant east was too far and too expensive to travel to. Once again, the tribes had appeared on the horizon, but remained elusive. They were just as lost as they had ever been. Worse, they seemed to be moving farther away to the most distant lands of the Far East. With no way to confirm or deny its veracity, the Mongol-Asian theory continued to flourish alongside persistent beliefs that the tribes were somewhere in the Middle East or Africa. All the while, hard evidence remained elusive. But in keeping with the history of the tribe saga, the story wouldn't be left to lie for long. In 1492, two major events brought the tale of the tribes surging back once again with some strange new twists. The first was that Christopher Columbus set sail for the East Indies, but instead landed in the Americas. The second was that Spain officially expelled Jewish people from its borders, forcing them to either convert to Christianity or flee. The Jewish population in Spain was estimated to be 300,000. Just like the Assyrians, Babylonians, and Romans, the Spanish were intent on destroying an established Jewish community and scattering its people to the winds. Suddenly, the story of a Jewish stronghold somewhere in the far reaches of the world held a special appeal. Perhaps there was somewhere they could settle safely and openly, without fear of persecution. At the same time, the New World opened up two entirely new continents where the tribes could have fled. Coming up, we'll look at the proliferation of new theories in the modern era and where the tribes most likely are today. Now, back to the story. Throughout European history, wherever there was contact with a new population, there was a new theory for where the ten lost tribes of Israel may have gone. First came the mysterious stranger orating about an unknown people hidden deep in the deserts of North Africa and the Middle East. Then, with the strange new Mongol invaders from the North and East, more theories sprung up. Jewish and Christian Europeans wondered if these unfamiliar people could be the lost tribes. When Christopher Columbus landed in the Americas in the 1490s, a whole new line of reasoning opened up. What if the native peoples of these lands were actually the lost tribes? Today, this idea sounds outlandish at best and racist at worst, but it was a common belief from the 1500s through the 1800s. One of the first to take up this line of reasoning was Antonio Montesinos, a Portuguese man from the early 1600s who was a Christian descendant of Jewish people forced to convert in 1497. 
As was common at the time, Montezinos left Portugal as a young man and headed somewhere he would be allowed to return to Judaism. In his case, the West Indies. Once settled, Montezinos grew increasingly interested in local peoples and their culture. He began spending extensive amounts of time traveling through modern-day Ecuador and Colombia. Typically, Montezinos hired native guides who spoke Portuguese to show him around and answer his litany of questions. Over the years, Montezinos spent a lot of time talking with his guides. He grew comfortable with them and was not shy about voicing his anti-Spanish sentiments. His protests soon landed him in jail. Alone in a cold, damp cell waiting out his sentence, Montezinos had a lot of time to reflect on his travels. One night, he had an epiphany. The natives were Hebrews. To Montezinos, it all made sense. The natives were secretive, had a long history, and hated the Spanish. It would make perfect sense if they were descendants of one of the lost tribes and were living here at the remote edges of the world, protecting their community and waiting to return. Once he got out of prison, Montezinos went and found the leader of the guide network, a man called Francisco, who openly despised the Spanish and believed they would soon be punished by a hidden people. Francisco was also regularly called leader by his own people. Montezinos was sure that Francisco was a keeper of the lost tribe's secrets, so he revealed that he, too, was Jewish. Supposedly, Francisco's entire attitude changed immediately. He agreed to take Montezinos on a treacherous journey to a secret location deep in the jungle. Montezinos could barely contain his excitement as Francisco led him deep into the mountains. They passed through thick vegetation while listening to the distant cries of strange birds and animals. They crossed an enormous river that raged and frothed. Montezinos stumbled behind his guide, exhausted and battered. But at last, they reached a group of native people hidden beyond the river. When Montezinos greeted them, they hugged him and began reciting Jewish scripture. His knees were weak. How, he asked Francisco in awe, had Jewish people come to live here in the depths of the jungle? It was a sad tale. Francisco explained how the ancient Israelites had come to the Americas long ago. They had fought with the natives and treated them badly, much as the Spanish treated the natives now. But the ancient Israelites realized their error and hid away. Now they lived in solitude, rarely emerging except when something of deep importance to the tribe took place. Montezinos revealing himself and his knowledge of the tribes had forced Francisco's hand. Montezinos pressed further, but Francisco did not have all the answers. He could not say how the ancient Israelites had traveled to the Americas or when they had arrived. Naturally, there was an element of suspicion here regarding how Francisco wasn't able to provide concrete details that would have definitively proven the link between the tribes and the New World. But, as had been the case with the other theories, the mere possibility that the tribes were involved was enough to lead people to accept the theory at face value. Despite this lack of clarity, Montezinos returned to Europe and spread this story, kicking off a new wave of theories that placed the lost tribes in the New World. 
In fact, Mormon scripture claimed that Native Americans were the descendants of the tribes, and therefore the Americas were the center of modern-day biblical life. Another strain of theories looked to all indigenous groups as possible tribe members. Native Americans fell into this paradigm, as did Celts, Tibetans, and ancient East Asian peoples. It was hard to prove these ideas, but harder to disprove them. Written records documenting the origins of these ancient peoples simply didn't exist, either because of oral history traditions or because these peoples had reason to hide their origins. Much like the Mongol craze in the 1200s, these theories rested on the idea of a foreign people who weren't well understood by Europeans and who lived beyond the edge of Europeans' physical understanding of the world. Okay, so that's a lot of history we've discussed. But what does it all mean? The many theories surrounding the Lost Tribes range from wacky to downright absurd. One of the most unlikely theories is that indigenous peoples of the Americas are the descendants of tribe members. This idea is rooted in a Eurocentric belief that the entire world follows biblical history. Furthermore, from the 16th to 19th centuries, it was commonplace for Europeans to try to link indigenous American peoples to European or Middle Eastern origins in order to justify their incredible architectural, artistic, and cultural accomplishments. In other words, Europeans didn't believe natives could accomplish these things due to racial inferiority, unless they were actually part of Judeo-Christendom. The theory that indigenous peoples were secretly Jews still kept their racial rank as lower than Caucasian Europeans, but linked them to a more acceptable Western historical narrative. There are a few cases where European explorers reported that local people confirmed they were Jewish tribe members or had some Jewish religious practices. But these European explorers aren't particularly credible sources on the local people they purported to understand. Explorers often embellished or even completely fabricated tales of their adventures and the people they met to make their journeys look more exciting and important. It is historically more likely that these groups' connection to the Lost Tribes was just another instance of Europeans projecting their own Eurocentric understanding of history onto other groups. Similar logic follows with any non-European group that Europeans believed might be one of the tribes. Mongols, Tibetans, or East Asian people are highly unlikely to be descendants of tribe members. There's no concrete historical fact connecting them to the Israelites, and the only specific primary source references we have to the location of the tribes are incredibly vague. The original biblical mention of the tribes only specified that they were beyond the Sambachin River, which was never definitively identified, and in the shadow of a mountain. This could be applied to nearly anywhere in the world, and was for many centuries. There are no historical documents to indicate any particular place where the tribes may have ended up. As a result, Today's scholars generally agree that the Ten Lost Tribes aren't hiding anywhere as a coherent culture, and we would generally agree with them. It's much more likely that the tribe's people integrated with their conquerors way back in the 8th century CE than that they somehow managed to form a contained, isolated kingdom in exile. 
In that case, their descendants probably have covered the globe, but they would be entirely ignorant of their 2,000-year-old heritage. However, there is one exception to this loss of the tribes, Beta Israel. As we discussed earlier, in the 9th century, a man named Eldad had come to the Jewish population of present-day Tunisia, claiming to be a member of the tribe of Dan. He told endless stories about the tribe's accomplishments, culture, and religious practices. Locals wrote down his stories and sent them to the head regional rabbi for review. And the rabbi accepted the story, thus recognizing the Ethiopian Jews for the first time. 700 years later in the 16th century, North African scholar Radbaz revisited the records and again accepted the Ethiopian Jews as true descendants of the tribe of Dan. These precedents became hugely important in 1973 when they were used to officially recognize the Ethiopian Jews under the chief Sephardic rabbi of Israel, Rabbi Ovidia Yosef. With this official recognition, Ethiopian Jews became eligible for the Law of Return. The Law of Return was passed by the Israeli government in 1950 and allows any Jewish person the right to live in Israel and obtain Israeli citizenship. As a result, Israel airlifted over 15,000 persecuted members of the Ethiopian Jewish population and brought them to Israel to become citizens. While this Ethiopian group has been accepted as historically Jewish by nearly all of Israel's rabbinic authorities today, historians are less sure of the lineage. A common counter-theory is that the Ethiopians are a newer Jewish group and Eldad was just a freeloading storyteller. One of the main points of argument is that, despite Eldad claiming to be Dan, his appearance in the 9th century CE still leaves nearly 1,600 years of the tribe's history unaccounted for. If the Dan tribe had managed to stay together for a millennium and a half, then it had to have some level of cohesion to transmit its ideas to Eldad. But no one ever found his invisible countrymen back in the 9th century. And as technology has improved, no one has found remains of Jewish kingdoms in Africa or the Middle East or China that seem to be 2,500-year-old civilizations. Still, the story of the Ten Lost Tribes continues to capture the imaginations of modern audiences. There's always a chance the tribe's descendants are still so well hidden that they have not been identified. Perhaps they're even invisible. It's also possible that they thrived sometime in the past, but have since disappeared into other communities, unaware of their complicated and contested history. There's no doubt that these lost people impacted history and the global gene pool, but almost 3,000 years later, they remain gone. Thanks again for tuning in to Gone. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. You can find more episodes of Gone and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all your favorite ParCast originals, like Gone for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. 
To stream Gone on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Gone in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Just because it's gone doesn't mean it can't be found. Gone was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Mahler, Maggie Admire, and Carly Madden. This episode of Gone is written by Taylor Cleland and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. Mm-hmm.